Hello, and welcome to another episode of Assassinations Podcast. We're going to look at the strange life and violent death of a man who was regarded, by some, as a skilled hypnotist, a mystical guru, and a perspicacious seer. Though to others, he was nothing more than a charlatan, a vaudeville act gone too far, and a man who might have been complicit in the rise of the Nazis in Germany. Erich Jan Hanussen was, in the 1920s and 30s, one of the most famous men in Europe. His supposed psychic abilities were greatly in demand, not only to entertain crowds, but as a source of spiritual insight for wealthy and powerful patrons, including, allegedly, senior members of the Nazi party. Indeed, it is claimed that Hannesen influenced the Führer, Adolf Hitler himself, that he tutored the German leader in the art of mesmerising an audience. If true, then he might have helped Hitler to enthrall a nation, leading Europe and the world into war. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. At around 9pm on Monday the 27th of February 1933, Four weeks after Adolf Hitler had been sworn in as Chancellor of Germany, fire tore through the German Parliament building, the Reichstag. By 11.30pm, when firefighters managed to extinguish the blaze, the grand Baroque Revival building in the centre of Berlin was gutted. Arriving at the scene, Hitler and his propaganda chief, Joseph Goebbels, met with the security minister, Hermann Göring. Goring, a long-time member of the Nazi party, who was considered by many Germans to be a hero of the First World War, declared that the fire must have been set by communist subversives. A police inspection of the ruins uncovered evidence that the fire had been set deliberately, and the Nazi propaganda machine went into overdrive to blame the blaze on the Communist Party of Germany and its international masters in Moscow. Hitler declared that the fire was an attack on all of Germany by a secret international Bolshevik cabal, intended as a signal for the communist revolution to begin. However, some people in Berlin thought that the Nazis themselves were the real culprits. Walter Gemp, a senior officer in the city's fire department, claimed to have uncovered evidence of Nazi involvement. 
his investigation was stymied by Goring's secret police, and Gemp was soon dismissed from his post. Arrested several years later, Gemp's dead body was found in a Nazi police jail cell. Allegedly, he was the victim of suicide, but perhaps he had been killed for defying the official narrative about the Reichstag fire. The day after the fire, Hitler pressured the aged German president, Paul von Hindenburg, to sign an emergency law that suspended most civil liberties, including freedom of speech and assembly, and the right to private correspondence and telephone conversations. If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about, their argument went. In one fell swoop, Hitler and the Nazis had gutted the Weimar Constitution, which had become something of a dead letter by this point anyway. In its place, they implemented authoritarian rule, all in the name of public safety and security, of course. A member of the Communist Party from the Netherlands, a man named Marinus van der Lubbe, was arrested for setting the Reichstag fire. Though he confessed to the crime and claimed to have acted alone, the Nazis insisted that the fire was the work of a wider communist plot that posed an ongoing threat, one that required extraordinary measures in response. Consequently, thousands of members of the German Communist Party were arrested. The party, which had won 17% of the vote in the last national election, was outlawed. Riding a wave of anti-communism and declaring that only Hitler could save the nation from division and ruin, the Nazis held a snap general election on the 5th of March 1933. Their share of the vote suddenly jumped from 33% to 44%. This gave the Nazis, with the aid of a small allied party, a majority of seats in the Reichstag. With many opposition members of Parliament prevented from taking their seats due to Nazi intimidation, the Enabling Act was passed on the 23rd of March, effectively making Hitler the dictator of Germany. This shocking course of events might have been predicted by Erich Jan Hanussen. In what could be regarded as a phenomenal feat of clairvoyance, on the evening of February 26th, 1933, 24 hours before the Reichstag fire, Hannesson held a seance for several important people in Berlin high society. During that seance, he foresaw a great conflagration that would allow Hitler and the Nazis to take absolute power in Germany. News of Hannesson's spookily accurate prediction spread through the city and across Germany. How could he have known? Was he really that good? Hmm, well, perhaps Hannesson was a little too good, for within a month of his remarkable prophecy about the fire, just as Hitler was about to gain supreme power over Germany, Erich Jan Hannesson was dead, allegedly abducted and killed by a squad of Nazi stormtroopers. Who was Erich Jan Hannesson? And how might he have come to play such a remarkable role at the very heart of German high society, including, allegedly, within the innermost circle of the Nazi party? Well, he really was a bit of a man of mystery. Someone who changed his name and identity, who lived in many locations across several different countries, 
who probably tried to obscure his past, and who built a successful career on being, well, rather mysterious. Though there are some things we can say about Hannison with some certainty, due to archival evidence of his wife's work and publications. Much of what we know, or think we know, about his biography comes from just three main sources. The first source was the man himself, in a memoir Hannison penned in 1930. I've not been able to source this work or find out much about it. Another source of information is a very rare biography by an Austrian author named Bruno Frey, a book with the English title The Clairvoyant, The Life and Death of Eric Jan Hanussen. The book, published in 1934, has been out of print for many decades and is now rather expensive, if you can even find a copy. It's also only available in German, which I can't read. I've seen some extracts from this work with English commentary republished elsewhere, including on the website of the Leo Beck Institute for the Study of German-Jewish History and Culture. There, Bruno Frey is described as a contemporary critic, a particularly sharp critic, of Eric Jan Hannesen. Frey was a journalist and author. Uh, he was also a member, or at least a close supporter, of the Communist Party. So, I can only assume that his political persuasion coloured his writing, especially in the politically charged atmosphere of 1933 and 1934, when Fry was writing, from exile, about a Nazi regime that he despised. It is my understanding that Bruno Fry's work greatly informed the third main written source we have about Hannesen, a book published in 1959 by a German writer named Johannes von Müllern-Schonhausen. The English title of this book is The Solution to the Enigma of Adolf Hitler. In that work, Hannesen features quite prominently as a mystic who greatly influenced Hitler's rise to power. That book is widely considered by modern scholarship to be very unreliable. Indeed, something of a fraudulent account of Hitler's life. Johannes von Müllern Schoenhausen turned out to be an alias for a man named Hans Müllern, a former member of the Nazi party who was spinning tall tales for money. Müllern's book was taken quite seriously for a long time, even influencing mainstream academia. The Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Poland extensively referenced this dubious work in his 1976 biography of Hitler, which was an international bestseller. However, most contemporary historians writing about the rise of Hitler would not include any of the claims made by Hans Müllern, which was in turn based on the writings of Bruno Frey. Okay. All these important caveats aside, what I think we can say is this. Firstly, there really was an entertainer and mystic called Erich Jan Hannussen, who plied his trade in Berlin at the time when the Nazis came to power. We have plenty of photos and playbills to prove it. But his real name might not have been Erich Jan Hannussen. While Hannesen claimed to be a descendant of Danish nobility, that was probably just part of his stage act and public persona. 
His given name might have been Herschel Chaim Steinschneider. Born in 1889 into a Jewish family in Vienna, the capital of Austria, and that his parents were not Scandinavian nobles, but travelling performers, working in music halls across the Austrian Empire and Italy. Their son, therefore, would have grown up amongst an artistic community of actors, magicians, stage hypnotists and novelty acts. An ideal training ground, one might say, for his future career on the stage. When the First World War broke out in 1914, Hannesson seems to have joined the Austrian army, but spent much of the war entertaining the troops. It was around this time that he developed a mentalism act that proved to be very popular. For those unaware of the art of mentalism, let me endeavour to explain. It is a subcategory of stage magic, where the practitioner utilises highly intuitive abilities. Often, this is based on a mix of hypnosis, the ability to read facial expressions and body language, a strong understanding of human psychology, and the ability to utilise the power of suggestion. And, I am sure, there are some who would say that mentalism also involves supernatural abilities, such as mediumship, and psychic mind control. A rather improbable-sounding but possibly true story is that Hannesson once performed for the Emperor of Austria, Franz Joseph, who was so impressed with the act that he presented the young man with a set of gold cufflinks adorned with the royal crest. Whether or not that occurred, and whatever his original name might have been, The young performer came out of the First World War with a distinctly Scandinavian-sounding moniker, Eric Jan Hannesson. It was as this preternaturally gifted Danish nobleman that he took his wartime act to the glittering lights of Berlin during the Weimar years. This was the period in German history between the two world wars, during which, even though the country was often plagued by economic problems and political crises, there was a vibrant and rather loose artistic scene focused on the city of Berlin and its theatres and nightclubs. These were days of decadence and decay, when a grotesque human drama played out to the electrifying rhythms of jazz music. In a frayed and fractured society, with abundant challenges to religious and social mores, emergent radical political ideologies, and plenty of risky and seedy entertainments in which to indulge, Hannesson's act did very, very well. There was an eager public appetite for psychics, mediums, hypnotists, and all manner of otherworldly spectacles in German cities. Perhaps this was rooted in the psychological trauma of the First World War, of years of brutal trench warfare followed by German defeat, and then the humiliating terms imposed upon the country by the Treaty of Versailles and subsequent international agreements. I can see how, in topsy-turvy interwar Berlin, the dark realm of the occult might have seemed like a tempting place for those who desperately sought an escape, maybe some answers, or at least an amusing diversion from a reality that was often difficult and grim much as the occult had been so attractive to the Romanov court in the years when Grigory Rasputin held sway in the years leading up to the Russian Revolution, 
a time when the world seemed to be collapsing around a ruling elite who, unable to make sense of the tectonic political shifts, instead busied themselves with the parlour tricks of a holy fool. Though biographical information about much of Hannison's life is definitely sketchy, there is ample archival evidence of his career as a stage performer in the interwar era, including posters, publicity photos, and newspaper articles. It seemed he enjoyed quite early success in his career thanks to appearances in two German films, one from 1919, titled Hypnosis, and the other from 1921, the Mysterious Death. We know that by 1930, Hannison was a headline act at popular theatres in Berlin, and we know that he hosted private seances, presumably for very wealthy patrons. The novelist Thomas Mann, the playwright George Kaiser, and the actor Peter Lorre were all reputedly clients of his. Stepping onto rather more shaky historical ground, it has been alleged that Hannison was acquainted with a German aristocrat and leading Nazi named Wolf Heinrich von Heldorf. After the Nazi seizure of power in 1933, von Heldorf became the chief organiser of the repression of the Jewish population of the German capital, including Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, when hundreds of Jewish business premises and houses were vandalised by Nazi mobs in November of 1938. Rather ironic, then, that for a while in the early 1930s, von Heldorf might have been an associate of Hannesen, who was probably of Jewish origin. But, I must stress, the relationship between Hannesen and Heldorf is a matter of some uncertainty, coming as it does from sources that we should treat with scepticism. We do know from newspaper archival records that there was some public debate in the early 1930s about whether or not Hannesen was Jewish. If he was Jewish, as was widely supposed, then he did not openly practice his faith. By all accounts, Hannesen's life and his stage persona were enmeshed as one. He lived and worked in the manner of a descendant of Scandinavian nobility. To maintain that persona, he would therefore have denied being of Jewish ancestry, though apparently he did acknowledge being adopted by Jewish parents as a child. I think we can say this. The very fact that his alleged Jewishness was a matter of some public controversy at the time tells us that Hannesen was moving in political circles where to be Jewish was a problem, and that would tend to indicate that he was friendly with leading Nazis. In the early 1930s, there were over 500,000 Jewish people living in Germany, almost half of them residing in Berlin with tens of thousands working in the entertainment business. Most people in Hannesen's line of work, and I think we can assume many of his well-to-do German friends, even at this time of growing anti-Semitism in Germany, wouldn't have particularly cared if he was Jewish or not. But that was the kind of thing that the Nazis did notice and care about a great deal. And yet we have this rumour of a close connection of Hannesen with the highest levels of the Nazi party, and even with the Führer himself. Too improbable to be true? 
that this party, steeped to its core in a worldview that claimed that Jews were the mortal enemies of the Aryan race, would associate closely with a psychic who was widely speculated to be Jewish? Even as the Nazis ramped up their anti-Jewish rhetoric, linking Jews to the threat of communism, could it be that Hannison's relationship with top stormtrooper commander Wolf Heinrich von Heldorf only deepened and got darker? Allegedly, at a party on Hannison's yacht, a 14-year-old boy was tied up so von Heldorf could whip the child with a riding crop as others watched. Hmm. Did that really happen? Or is this story part of the dubious lore of the relationship between the Nazis and the clairvoyant? Difficult to say. It sounds like propaganda, and yet it also seems entirely plausible. I think that senior Nazis, even raving anti-Semites, might have been willing to dismiss rumours of Hannison's Jewish origin, at least for a while. Maybe they enjoyed his psychic readings too much to care. Or could it be that, as a popular entertainer, Hannison was just useful to the Nazis? Wildly successful with the common theatre-going public, as well as with powerful patrons who flocked to have their fortunes told by him, Hannison had become very rich and influential. Though he grew up in a family of very modest means, by the 1930s he had honed his talents to such an extent that he'd climbed to the very pinnacle of German society. He lived in a mansion, owned a yacht, ate at the finest restaurants, and would have been on first-name terms with stars of stage and screen, the movers and shakers of the bustling entertainment scene in the German capital. But did this wealth come solely from his success as a theatrical entertainer and professional clairvoyant? Or did Hannison get so rich, at least in part, because he had dirt on those elite Germans who frequented the seedy world of Berlin's occult scene? If he knew their secrets, maybe even catered to their whims, was he blackmailing them too? Again, we're entering into the world of speculation, but that's a hard thing to avoid when we're talking about Hannison. Given the circumstances and people involved, not improbable. I think. In 1932, Hannison established a weekly newspaper in which he hoped to spread his own brand of popular mysticism. There were at least six other astrological weeklies published in Germany at this time, and it was a fairly popular activity to go to a fortune teller or psychic theatrical performance in major cities such as Berlin. Hannison's tabloid was called the Berliner Wochenschau and it quickly became a hit with the general public, who enjoyed its trashy mix of occult and psychic stories, astrological predictions, ribald social and political tittle-tattle, and strident German nationalism. Perhaps the most popular feature of the paper was its horoscopes of well-known people. Several Nazi officials had their horoscope published, and the predictions were usually very positive. The attitude of the Nazi party to the Berliner Wochenschau, and the world of the occult in general, was official disapproval, but leniency. Hitler was born into a Catholic family, but he was not religious as an adult. While he publicly denied being an atheist, 
Hitler viewed devotion to the nation and its people to be the highest ideal. The Nazis preserved the official role of religion in German life. The Roman Catholic and Lutheran churches provided social and cultural services as well as schools. Crucially, Hitler appreciated that these churches served as bulwarks against communist influence on the minds of their congregations. So long as the Catholic and Protestant church leaders posed no threat to the Nazi party's authority, they could continue to play that key role in German society. On the other hand, Hitler believed that mysticism, such as that promoted by Hannesen and the Berliner Wochenschau newspaper, was a corrosive force within German national life. Nazi party doctrine tended to dismiss the supernatural in favour of racial pseudoscience, though there were some senior Nazis who dabbled in esoteric religious or spiritual activities and a peculiar hodgepodge of Nordic-Aryan mysticism permeated the elite SS paramilitary headed by top Nazi official Heinrich Himmler. Nazi pageants and ceremonies were a gaudy collage of ersatz chivalry with imagery drawn from the folklore and traditions of the Holy Roman Empire. Inspired by their own peculiar take on 19th century German romanticism, Many Nazis worshipped at the altar of Reichard Wagner and his reimagining of Germanic lore for the stage of the great opera house at Bayreuth. But it would be a stretch, I contend, to claim that Nazism was steeped in the occult. That notion has become very popular in modern times, largely reinforced through the Indiana Jones movies. The roots of the claim that the Nazis and their ideology was shaped by the occult really go back to the 1930s and in particular the work of a Scottish folklorist and mythologist named Lewis Spence. In a book written in the late 1930s and published in 1940 titled Occult Causes of the Present War, Mr Spence claimed that there were hidden powers at work behind the Nazi organisation secret satanic agencies who employed Hitler and the German fascist movement for their own diabolical purposes. This work, no longer in print but available in facsimile, would go on to influence the Russian-French polymath and writer Jacques Bergier. Bergier's hugely popular 1960s book, the Morning of the Magicians, kicked off the now widely held popular belief that the Nazis were, at their heart, occultists. Bergier was born in the Russian Empire to a successful Jewish family that fled to France in the 1920s. During the Nazi occupation of France, he became a member of the resistance. Bergier and his co-author, Louis Paulwies, stated in the preface to their book that it was only supposed to be speculative and thought-provoking. Despite this disclaimer, The Morning of the Magicians shaped a lot of young minds upon its release, and it has essentially rewritten history, or at least history as it is commonly understood. The book spawned a veritable Nazi occultism industry, from novels to movies to shows on the History Channel and even mingling into mainstream academia. Now, I don't claim to be any sort of expert on the connection of Nazism with the occult. There may be something to it, there may not. 
I'm just tracing the roots of the popular conception of the link between them, and that, undoubtedly, goes back to anti-Nazi writers with an axe to grind. Whether that's French resistance member Jacques Bergier, or communist fellow traveller Bruno Fry, we ought to consider these sources with a good deal of scepticism. Still, let us entertain the idea that there were at least a few Nazis with links to the occult. Hannison allegedly had a connection to the senior Nazi paramilitary leader von Heldorf, as we previously commented on. Was Hannison able to use that connection to secure a meeting with Adolf Hitler in the summer of 1932? Hitler was not yet in power, though the Nazis had become the largest party in the Reichstag. No party was able to form a government that summer, so President Hindenburg had resorted to ruling by emergency decrees. Whether or not Hannison did really meet with Hitler, it was around this time that his newspaper, the Berliner Wochenschau, became a solidly pro-Nazi organ. It published glowing reports about Hitler and his vision for a strong German nation, with front-page headlines like, Hitler will win, and Hitler will defeat communism. Hannison may have become a major financial supporter of the Nazi party that year, allegedly hosting fundraisers on his yacht and even personally buying military equipment for Nazi stormtroopers. There are claims that he and Hitler met many times over the next few months, though I think we should treat that claim with extreme caution. President Hindenburg called another election for the fall of 1932, hoping that the outcome would allow for the formation of a government with a working majority in the Reichstag. In the October 8, 1932 issue of the Berliner Wochenschau, Hannesen urged his readers to support Hitler in the upcoming election. He published the Nazi leader's horoscope, which purported to show the placement of the planets in the birth chart predicting Hitler's rise to greatness, proving his personal valour, and showing that only the Nazis could save Germany from a great calamity. The paper stated that the rise of the Third Reich was inevitable and encouraged its readers to vote for Hitler as a saviour of Germany because, quote, Germany has finally come to an awareness of itself, because Germany finally has gained consciousness of its honour, because it finally feels its awakening powers coming alive after a difficult crisis. The glowing piece might have swayed a few voters, but it was not enough to secure Hitler victory in the general election of November 1932. In fact, popular support for the Nazis fell across Germany. The election campaign drained the party's resources, and the sharp decline in electoral support led to disillusionment and defections from its ranks. This was a moment of crisis for Hitler's leadership. But the support provided by Hannesen and his newspaper did not waver. In fact, he sought to position his paper as the preeminent media voice in favour of National Socialism. The formula of his tabloid had proven to be a hit. Salacious stories, mystical predictions and pro-Nazi propaganda. And Hannesen made the leap of changing the Berliner Wochenschau from a weekly to a daily publication. However, this move made the paper a direct competitor to the Nazis' own daily, Der Angriff. 
that newspaper was owned and controlled by Joseph Goebbels. Fearing that he would lose circulation, and therefore influence, Goebbels retaliated by publishing the revelation that Hannison was Jewish. As noted earlier in the episode, Hannison denied this, insisting that he had only been adopted by a Jewish family, but that he really was of noble Danish ancestry. Perhaps under pressure from Hannison's alleged friend, von Heldorf, and probably concerned about alienating a key ally and benefactor of the Nazi party, Goebbels was forced to issue a retraction. Whether the Nazis believed Hannison to be a Jew or not, they might have been happy enough, at least at this stage, to benefit from the support of the Berliner Wochenschau. The most salacious claim against Hannison is that he gave lessons in public speaking and audience mesmerism to Adolf Hitler. Could this be true? Hitler by the early 1930s was already a highly practiced and effective public speaker. He must have given hundreds if not thousands of speeches from his time as a rabble-rouser in the beer halls of Munich, through his ascent via parliamentary politics to become the leader of the largest faction in the German Reichstag. By his own account, it took Hitler several years of conscientiously working on his speech-making in the 1920s to perfect his style of oratory, thus establishing a key component of his public persona. As part of this effort, Hitler had taken speech and acting lessons. He carefully rehearsed his major speeches, sometimes in front of a mirror, in order to perfect facial expressions and gesticulations. Would it be any surprise if such a perfectionist in the art of public address shouldn't turn to a man like Hannison, a man who had built a very successful career on his ability to mesmerise audiences, big and small, into believing that he had the most incredible abilities? Or is that just another example of the attempt by anti-Nazi propagandists to portray Hitler and his party as deranged occultists using the dark arts to bamboozle and entrap the German people? Well, I'd say there is good reason to doubt whether or not Hannison ever met Hitler, let alone gave him a crash course in mesmerism. But you never know. Maybe, just maybe, Hitler and Hannison did have a secret rendezvous one cold night in January of 1933, with the Nazi leader summoning the clairvoyant to the Hotel Kaiserhof, Nazi party headquarters in Berlin. There, after talking for a while, Hannison invited Hitler to take a seat in the middle of the salon. The celebrity mystic then took the hands of the future Führer and examined the palms closely. Hannison shut his eyes. He seemed to enter into a trance, and then he declared in a loud voice, I see victory for you, Adolf. It cannot be stopped. Believe that story or not. What we can say is that in early 1933, Hannison was at the height of his power and influence. He was a superstar in Germany, rich and popular. He had cornered the spooky tabloid media market and, even if only through his paper, he undoubtedly had at least some influence within Nazi circles. Hubris, then, when Hannison met with a group of elite clients in his newly built pagan temple, 
the ornate Palace of the Occult, in February of 1933, there to solemnly predict that a great house would soon be in flames, a conflagration that would act as a harbinger of some seismic change in the life of the nation and the fate of the world? Hubris to publish that prediction in the morning edition of his newspaper. Hubris, because surely Hannison could only have predicted the Reichstag fire, which occurred just hours later, because he had been tipped off about it by those responsible for the crime. Or could it be that Hannison himself had some hand in setting the fire, thus fulfilling his own prediction? Unless, of course, it was sheer coincidence. Or, if one is a believer in such things... Perhaps Hannison really was a psychic seer. However he might have known about it, the very next day the Reichstag was indeed engulfed in flames. But if he did have the power of prophecy, then it was a gift fit for Grecian tragedy, for what Hannison predicted brought about his own demise. The Reichstag fire led to the conquest of total power in Germany by Hitler and the Nazis. And with that, they lost their need of Herr Hannesen and his trashy tabloid. The Nazis now had total control over the media, as well as all the levers of state power. The days of relying on donations and favourable horoscopes from a suspected Jewish clairvoyant were over. Hannesen had also allegedly lent hundreds of thousands of marks to high-ranking Nazis, including the powerful new chief of security in Berlin, Hermann Göring. Well, if true, Göring had the means, as well as the motive, to liquidate those debts. We know that Hannesen had become something of a rival to the Nazi propaganda guru, Joseph Goebbels, who was threatened by the success of the Berliner Wochenschau newspaper, and who might have resented Hannesen's skills as a communicator and possibly his close access to top Nazis. And it has been alleged that Hannesen was in possession of film footage showing senior members of the Nazi party and its stormtroopers engaged in homosexual orgies, part of an alleged blackmail operation that might have contributed to Hannesen's rise from humble origins to great wealth and influence. In short, he had plenty of people with potential motivations to eliminate him, financial, political, personal, and because of his alleged Jewishness. His days were numbered. On the morning of March 25th, 1933, Hannesen disappeared. It is widely supposed that he was seized by Nazi stormtroopers. His body was later discovered in a field on the outskirts of Berlin, with three bullet holes in his chest. After their seizure of power, the Nazis quickly established complete control over the media landscape in Germany. All opposition newspapers were banned, while even friendly newspapers were placed under the control of the Ministry of Propaganda led by Goebbels. The Berliner Wochenschau, though it had been useful for a while, was no longer needed by the Nazis, who shut it down. Only one Jewish-owned newspaper was permitted to continue publication in Nazi Germany. That was the Judische Roundschau, 
which was a Zionist periodical and publishing house that encouraged the emigration of German and Austrian Jews to Palestine under the auspices of the Havara Agreement. This was the deal between the Zionist Federation of Germany, the Jewish Colonial Trust Bank, and the Nazi government to transfer tens of thousands of German Jews to Palestine with their property between 1933 and 1939 in exchange for the purchase of German goods. So, there we are. A strange case, and, I feel, a rather unsatisfying one. History is often, how could I put it, messy, and the messier it gets, the more equivocal one has to be. With the unreliability of sources and the highly politically charged atmosphere, and aware of the popular beliefs about the supposed connection between Nazism and the occult, I've had to be rather circumspect. It's always nicer when things are clear-cut, but that's just not how we can tell every story, especially if we're talking about periods of history that have been highly politicised. As such, it behooves us to keep our eyes wide open, but not always to trust what we think we see when we tarry a while in the halls of the past. Thanks for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. The episode was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. Our theme music is by Graham Ronald. You can follow us on Twitter, or X, should I now say, at Assassin's Pod. And you can find out how to get in touch via the show notes that accompany this episode. I have a few irons in the fire for new episodes. More details about that in the new year. Until then, happy holidays, and goodbye.